Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. Well, by this point in Revelation 9, Jesus has opened all the seals. He has laid claim to the earth. Uh, But because the world rejects that claim and refuses to abdicate to Jesus' rule, the lamentation, mourning, and woe that is written on the scroll must be brought to pass. And so in chapter 8, you know, we saw the first four trumpet judgments. And then after the fourth trumpet, God sent an angel flying around the earth to warn those who remain in rebellion, that three worse judgments are coming. And because they refuse to listen, the fifth trumpet sounds and the first horror begins. Chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. When the fifth trumpet sounds, it says, I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Now, the word there for star is the same word as in chapter 8, verse 10, when it says the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven. Um, But this is clearly an angel as opposed to a meteor. Even though the word is used for meteors, um, it is also used for angels. So how do we know that it's an angel this time? How do we know if it last time it's a meteor and this time it's an angel? Well, because the wording's different. It mentions, and I saw a star fall from heaven. The word there for fall is a perfect participle. In other words, it's a completed event in the past which has ongoing results into the future. And so it should be, and I saw a star having fallen. It had already fallen, and it's still fallen. And so the idea is it's a fallen star, a fallen angel. This is an, at this point, unidentified fallen angel. In addition to that, in 8.10, it mentions that I saw a great star fall from heaven, but here there's an untranslated the after, before heaven. So it's a fallen star from the heaven, which is showing us that this is the heaven where God dwells and not just the generic sky or the heavens of outer space. And then finally it says, and to him. Uh, I don't think uh, the meteor is ever called a him. And so here it's clearly a personage, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit here is multiple words. It means the shaft of the abyss. Now, the the first time the word for abyss here is used in Scripture is Luke chapter 8, verse 31. And you're familiar with that story because that's when the demons asked Jesus, please don't send us into the deep And then they asked to be sent into the pigs. And, of course, that didn't work out well for them either. But that was what they were referencing. Don't send us into the abyss. That's the same word used uh, here. Deep is the same word. And almost every reference in the New Testament uh, for this word is to that place where demons are imprisoned. 
So this fallen angel is given permission by the Lord to open the shaft that leads to the prison. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound good to me. Verse 2, so he, he opened the bottomless pit, the shaft to the abyss, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, out of the shaft, as the smoke of a great furnace. So smoke begins to belch out of this shaft in a, like a massive chugging chimney, and it mentions that the sun and the air were darkened by reason because of the smoke coming out of the abyss. Um, now, if this is a natural effect, that smoke is coming out of a, like it's, like it, the smoke was down there and it's coming out of the shaft uh, on a natural place, then that places the abyss somewhere inside the earth's core and the shaft of the abyss somewhere on the surface of the earth. Um, I wouldn't encourage you to go treasure hunting. Keep it closed, please. But because the Bible doesn't tell us if this is a natural or supernatural event, we can't definitively state uh, the abyss's location. What we do know is that this judgment will be announced by a massive amount of smoke that blocks out the sunlight and fills the atmosphere. Now, lest you think, well, that's absurd, that would take an incredible amount of smoke. When Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, visible ash blocked the sun as far away as 930 miles It took three days for the ash cloud to spread across the nation and 15 days for it to encircle the globe. So this is something that has happened in the past. Just because you haven't seen it in your lifetime uh, doesn't mean that it can't happen. And yet, while that's bad, all of a sudden the sky going, you know, being blocked and the sun going dark because of this smoke, what emerges from the smoke is what's really terrifying. It says in verse 3, And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. Uh, But these are not like any locust you've ever seen. We'll see that in a little bit later. It mentions, though, that unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Um, Upon them was conferred a jurisdiction or an authority. Um, God gives them authority or jurisdiction to do something while they are loosed Um, And it mentions, it tells us, as the same way that scorpions of the earth have power or authority. Um, So what God allows them to do is indeed limited. Uh, These locusts are, we're going to see in verse 4, not able to devour crops or kill people. They will be limited to stinging with their tail like a scorpion does. Verse 4. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Um, the grass there refers to, it actually it should be translated a feeding place. Uh, so it could mean pasture grass, it could mean grain, it could mean other crops. Green things here refer to pale green things. So this would be uh, blighted pan, uh, plant life. And so the heat wave that we've mentioned already uh, last week has continued to blight plant life. So they're not able to hurt that. And they're not able to hurt any tree, uh, whatever's left from the first trumpet judgment. Um, It mentions here uh, that they can only hurt those men which have not the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, the normal ways a locust swarm causes destruction is by devouring grass and, you know, uh, uh, green things and trees. However, they're not going to be allowed to do that. These are not normal locusts. They will be able to hurt 
the men which did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, the seal of God in the forehead is a reference back to Revelation 7 verse 4 where it says, and I heard the number of them which were sealed and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So the question then comes up is, does this protection extend to those or does this seal even extend to those who come to faith but aren't part of the 144,000? Um, I, I will say yes, but I can't tell you because that's, well, that's what Revelation says. I will say it only because of truths we learn from other passages in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 18.25, um, Abraham, when he hears about God's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, of course, immediately thinks to himself, my, my nephew's living there. Lot lives there. His whole family lives there. And so he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, surely you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Surely the Lord of all the earth will do what's right. He understands that, that the right thing to do is never to judge the righteous with the wicked. And, and the Lord says, surely I, I, you're right. I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. If I, find, if I find 50 there, I won't destroy it. And of course, Abraham goes all the way down to 10. And, and the sad story of Sodom and Gomorrah is God couldn't even find 10 righteous people in the city. So we see this all throughout the Scripture. While the natural events of our fallen world do hit everyone, God's judgment, though, He does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And so I would have to say that, yes, this protection extends uh, to the righteous, not just 144,000 uh, but to the righteous who are, are here. These locusts can only attack unbelievers. But look at what verses 5 and 6 says, because they can't kill them. Verse 5 says, And to them, the locusts, it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. So they can't kill, but what they are allowed to do, they, the jurisdiction they have is they can torment. The word here means to punish through physical torture. They will be able to physically torture for five months. It mentions here that their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. So the physical torture, physical pain that these people who get stung will experience will be similar to the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. Now, scorpion stings uh, vary in the pain that they cause. Uh, we don't have any um, truly dangerous scorpions here in Florida, but they can be quite painful still. Um, when a scorpion stings, they initially release a prevenom, which is extremely painful because it starts triggering nerve impulses in the body. These nerve impulses have a numbing effect. The poison, when it does this, it has a numbing effect which paralyzes the body so that the effects of the full venom can work their way to the heart. Um, we don't have, again, any seriously dangerous scorpions here in Florida with the full venom, but all scorpions have this prevenom, so it's extremely painful. Uh, however, symptoms of stings in humans can be as minor as numbness or swelling around the, the sting site, but the more severe symptoms from these more poisonous scorpions uh, can result in muscle twitching, drooling, vomiting, hypertension, accelerated heartbeat, and blurry vision. And that's all in addition to the immediate pain or burning that occurs from the prevenom. Um, I don't know which of those symptoms will be the result of these stings. All of these symptoms are possible within the scope of this verse. 
But what is interesting, in a sad way, is that people will attempt to commit suicide in order to escape the suffering. However, it won't work. It says, and in those days shall men seek death. The phrase there, seek, speaks of an intense or forceful desire to do something. They will be pursuing this course of action at all costs, but it says they shall not find it. The word there means they will not attain to it. Many will want to die, but will not experience it. Many will attempt to die. They will attempt suicide, but it won't work. In other words, and and this is the idea here, it mentions, and death shall flee from them. Literally, it means when death would normally come, death flees. So the idea is when you would do something, whether it's a gunshot wound or an overdose or something else that would normally result in death, death is going to flee, and it will take a five-month holiday. And so wounds that would normally kill a person will remain, and all of the discomfort that comes from those will remain for at least five months until death returns. Now, if you read this and you think, that's horrible. It is horrible. But the thing that we must consider, what is truly horrible, is it is terribly horrible and terribly sad when a person chooses death instead of repentance. And the truth is, this is not the first time we've seen this response in the time of Revelation. We saw it already when the sixth seal was opened. Look at Revelation 6 with me. I wanted to wait till we got here to comment on this. This is not the first time that men will wish for death rather than to repent. In Revelation 6, verses six, well, verse 16, actually at the end of verse 15, it mentions that as this judgment of God comes, this wrath of the Lamb comes upon a Christ-rejecting world, that they will be able to know this is coming from the Lord. And so it says in verse 15 at the end that every person will hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and they will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. How can a person hide through death, though? I mean, if the rocks are going to fall on you, you're going to die. So how can you hide from God in death? This shows the idea, the concept, the mindset that the unbelieving world has at this time, that they will reject the idea of an afterlife, that death is indeed somehow a way to escape God's judgment, that if I choose death rather than repentance, I can find relief. Now, this is a very similar mindset to the one that Adam and Eve had in the garden, that they could hide from God somehow, that they could escape judgment for sin. It is the lie that I tell myself when I'd rather escape judgment from God for my sin than be rescued by God from my sin. That's the lie. Their desire to live and die on their own terms will be greater than the desire to be rescued on God's terms. And that is a horrible, awful thing. That someone would truly choose death and think that that was a way to escape or find relief from the rescue that God offers and the judgment that comes because I won't take it. 
I've spoken to some people who have said they would rather die than be rescued by God. And I ask you this morning, does that describe you? I don't know every heart here this morning. Are God's terms so onerous that you would rather die than be rescued by Him? You know, what is crazy here is that they actually believe that's true, that, well, I can escape, I'll just take my life. The Lord will show these individuals just how foolish that mindset is. Because he's going to explain to them in very clear terms, you don't control death. You don't control when you die. You don't control so many things that you think you control. Because you are not me. The Lord controls everything. Even death bows the knee to him. Listen. There are two concepts that every human being must come to terms with, whether in this life or the next. You must come to terms with it. Far better to do it in this life. Two concepts that every human being eventually will come to terms with, whether it's in this life and be saved or in the next one and be judged. And it's these two ideas. Number one, it's the idea that Jesus loves you. You have to come to terms with that. Every human being must come to terms with that and will come to terms with it. And the second one is that Jesus is your Lord whether you want him to be there or not. Those are two ideas that you are going to have to come to terms with, that every person is going to have to come to terms with. We read about it in our scripture reading. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the heart, the mindset of our Lord. And what was it? That being in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, the word therefore means the very substance of God, that he is the very nature of God, that he is all God. It says that being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know, when you see someone stoop to robbery, the idea is something has gotten desperate. They must have what that other person has. And they're going to stoop to this course of action to take it. Now, this word here has not that exact meaning, but the reason they translated it robbery is because of the concept that's there. That robbery is something that you're, you've decided to put everything else at a lower value that you would go and you would take this course of action. That what is there is of the highest value. And what's interesting is that the scriptures repeatedly teach us that Jesus' position as the Son of God enthroned in heaven was not the thing that was of highest value to him. He did not think it's something to be held onto at all costs. What he wanted and what was of greater value to him then all the privileges of heaven was you and me, his great love for us. And so, Philippians 2 goes on to say that he took upon himself the form of a man, the incarnation, that he stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of all the privilege of deity and stepped into time, space, and matter and became like us. And he humbled himself before his father, even unto the death of the cross. The Bible tells us that God proves his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is something you must come to terms with. 
Exodus 34, 6 declares that the Lord abounds in goodness. Over and over and over, the Scripture declares, give thanks to the Lord. For why? He is good, and His love endures forever. His mercy, the Old Testament says, but what it means is His loyal love, His unconditional devotion, His unwavering kindness towards us. It endures forever. In Psalm 139, verses 16 and 17, David cries out, and he says, though you knew me, you know, uh, let me read it so I don't mess it up. He says, your eyes did see my substance, yet being an unperfect, and in, in other words, not fully completed when he was just in the womb. He says, and in your book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Even before I was made, your heart was set upon me, you knew me, and you set your love upon me. And David declares, how precious also are your thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Jesus loves you. Everything he says is for your good. Truth is, I can't even say that about myself because I can't say every thought about that I have about me is for my good because some of my thoughts lack the knowledge or the wisdom for what is actually in my best interest. Life, real life, it can't be found from myself, but it can be given from Jesus. You have to come to terms with that, that he loves you, that what he wants is best for you. The second part of that section of Scripture in Philippians, beginning in verse 9, it says, Wherefore, the Lord has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, whether it's those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, or those who are under the earth, whether you're alive in heaven, you're alive here, or you're dead. You're unrighteous or righteous. It doesn't matter. You're going to bow the knee and someday it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. All will bow and confess Jesus as Lord. It's just a question of when. And if you do not recognize that Jesus loves you and that he knows what is best for you and that he deserves your worship in this life, you will acknowledge it in eternal judgment. And the concept that a person had the opportunity to receive those things in this life but chose death instead is one of the saddest things ever. We can look at all the horrors of these locusts and whatever, what they're doing, but the real horror is that a person had the opportunity to receive that and said no. I'd rather die. Well, after describing what the locusts do, John decides to explain to us in detail how different these locusts are and why this plague will be so horrifying. This judgment, I should say, should be so horrifying. Verse 7, and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, creepy and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and they were, there were stings or stingers in their tails, and their 
power, their jurisdiction, their authority from God was to hurt men for five months. It starts off by describing them here like horses that have their battle armor on. Uh, in German, the locust is actually, the word for locust is actually, it means hay horse. Um, in Italian, the word for locust means little horse. Um, I've never thought that when I, you ever, you know, we get them sometimes in Florida, the little grasshoppers. You know, all of a sudden there's like, you know, 10 of them hopping around your front yard and you're just like, ooh, what are they doing here, you know? Because they're gigantic, not the little, I'm not talking about the little mole cricket grasshoppers, I'm talking about the real dudes, you know, the big huge ones, you know, and they show up sometimes in your yard and they just look creepy, they're sitting out there and just kind of nibbling on stuff and, you know, I, I, I know those, I've never seen one that looks like a horse in battle armor though mentions these things have crowns of gold on their head. That's the day, that's the day when I retire. I, you know, when I start to go outside and I see one with a crown on his head, he's got a little human face looking at me. That's when I shut the door and go back inside and come quickly, Lord Jesus. While a swarm is a, a locust swarm, a normal locust swarm is a serious threat to plant life, these these are harmful to people. These locusts are way different. They've got human faces. It mentions that they had hair as the hair of women. Oh, the horror. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that uh, they have hair like when you just wake up in the morning, ladies. I think what he's saying, not that that happens to any of my daughters or my wife. They wake up looking perfectly beautiful every day. I think it's just saying they had long hair. I mean, it's, these are, again, I, I've never seen a locust like this before, you know? I mean, I look out, and they're definitely creepy looking, and because of, well, I'll tell you later my story, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem stepping on those things. They have teeth as like the teeth of lions, and these are the, the canines. These are the ones on the outside, on the two coming down from the top on the outside, and two coming up from the bottom. I mean, you want to be freaked out, go look at, go Google locusts of Revelation 9 images, you know, and you'll see some wonderfully creative artwork that people have come up with. And then it mentions they have breastplates. They had breastplates just like they were breastplates of iron. I mean, these are battle-ready locusts. And then here it is, the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. The, the rapid clop of the horses combined with the clatter of wheels churning behind them. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, someone say stop. <laughs> I'm giving nightmares. Uh, could you imagine something like that chasing you? Again, I don't know if these demons are just going to burst from the smoke like, you know, Hopper from, you know, A Bug's Life or whatever and, you know, and swarm down upon everyone and rush upon them. I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if the attack's going to be more gradual. You know, the alarm goes off in the morning, you wake up, and there's one standing over you. I have no clue. Anyway, you shape it, it is horrifying. And yet, everything in verses 7 through 9 is horrifying as, as it is. Um, the abnormal face with the canines doesn't bite. They're, they attack with their tails. The tails like unto scorpions. Now, a popular view is that John is seeing a modern military air, aircraft like a helicopter, and he's describing it in terms he understands. But that view has issues. Um, most often, people who would give this view appeal to 
the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where the prophet describes an invasion from the north in very similar terms. He says they they come like horses dressed for battle, and then, of course, you have later in the chapter, you know, uh, God references these uh, the, the, the canker worm and the locust and the caterpillar that does damage, they're like that. However, in verse 2 of Joel 2, Joel, the prophet, clearly calls the army human. While John may use similar comparisons to Joel, John never calls this army human. He flat out calls them locusts. And we already know that John knows how to tell us when something is like something else because he uses that language elsewhere in Revelation. If these are not demons, then John would have said, well, they look like locusts, not that they were locusts. And while I understand that that is hard for our minds, our human minds to wrap around to think there's going to be like literal demonic locusts that go around stinging people with their tails and causing them to want to die and death's going to take a a five-month vacation, that's not a good enough reason to explain it away as modern weaponry. When God's Word speaks plainly, we should do the same, lest we make ourselves the authority of Scripture instead of letting Scripture teach us. Now, when we read and see these horrible demons, these locust creatures, there is a sense where the Lord is trying to reason with humanity and and say, is this really what you want? When I was about 12 years old, I read the book called There's a New World Coming by Hal Lindsey, and it covered the end times events in Revelation, and it terrified me, absolutely terrified me. And God confronted me with that question, is this what you really want, Will? You want to be around for this time? Is that what you want? And I answered that question with an emphatic no. I do not want to be around. I did not want to be around for God's judgment. And so a few months later, I walked down to the front of the church to receive Christ. I didn't want my way anymore because I knew God's judgment was exactly what I deserved for living life my way. And the whole theme of the book of Revelation is the idea that the king is coming. And I knew that I had not bowed the knee to the king yet much like these had not. And so knowing what I deserved, I decided that I did not want what I deserved. I wanted God's love instead. I wanted God's ways instead. I wanted his forgiveness and I wanted to know Jesus. And so I turned from my ways and I started following him. And God forgave me and he accepted me into his family. When a a person repents of their sin like that, and they put their trust in Christ for salvation like that, we call it being born again. Born from above, spiritually born. Something every person needs if they want to be with the Lord and not present for this judgment. Now, verses 11 and 12 give us some closing thoughts on this trumpet judgment. It says, And they had a king over them, the locusts did, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon and Apollyon in the Greek tongue. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Now again, Proverbs 30 verse 27 tells us that the locusts have no king, 
So normal locusts, that is. So these are not normal locusts. These are demonic locusts. They do have a king, and it mentions he is the angel of the bottomless pit, the angel of the shaft of the abyss, whose name is Abaddon in Greek or Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. The words, both of them, mean destroyer. The angel's name, this fallen angel's name, is destroyer. So unlike a mindless swarm of normal locusts, these have been given specific permission by God to do something specific. And they are led by a specific angel here, a very wicked angel whose name means destroyer and who is called the angel of the abyss. Uh, Most Bible teachers believe this is the fallen angel who opens the shaft of the abyss in verse 1. Is it Satan or is it some other high-ranking fallen angel? We cannot know for sure, but it sure does sound like the father of lies, and so I will go with that. And so because of the horrors of this judgment, in verse 12, when it's complete, John gives this warning to the world. He says, one woe is past. The phrase there means one horrifying judgment has come, and now it's gone out of existence. The locusts will come, they will do what God allows them, and then it seems they are locked back up, never to be loosed on the world again. And yet what John is warning is, that is not good news for you if you have not repented yet still. Because their banishment back to the abyss is not a relief. It is just evidence that God has more judgment coming if you won't repent. And that's what John says, behold. Behold means pay attention. Do not ignore this warning. There come two woes more hereafter. Two horrifying judgments are still in transit. They are already on the way. They are coming, and the only way to escape them is to repent. Now, is this chapter and is that idea scary? No, it's not scary. It's terrifying. (laughs) It's absolutely terrifying. And the reason it's terrifying is because it is a fearful thing to reject the full revelation of God's truth. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me, and I'm going to close with these verses and some thoughts on them. Hebrews 10, and I want to read verses 26 through 31. The scripture here says in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So what does remain? but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment than that, those who died under the law of Moses without mercy, of how much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite under the Spirit of grace? A lot sore punishment. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. That is a scary thing. It's a terrifying thing. 
The word there for sin willfully in verse 26, it means to sin hatefully, with despite in your, in your heart, with rejection in your heart. It means to do so with absolute, I want nothing to do with you, Lord. To do so after we have received the knowledge of the truth. And the word here for knowledge is just not gnosko. It's just not general knowledge. The word is epigonosko. And it refers to knowledge that is precise and correct. It is above and beyond all doubt. In the New Testament, it's used for understanding God's word. If someone understanding fully the truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is, the truth of his love and the truth of his lordship, and they despisingly, hatefully say no and reject it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you do that. These unbelievers will know that God has permitted these demonic creatures to torture them as a means of getting their attention. And in full knowledge of that, they will still reject Christ. That is a fearful thing to do. Because when you do so, you're taking your life into your own hands against someone with whom it is impossible to defeat. (laughs) You know, we think we understand the rules of how things work. Do you know what a large portion of the Bible is about? It's about God going, I don't have to play by those rules. Pharaoh, think about it. Israel goes in, And Pharaoh somehow convinces himself, well, I mean, I guess it just happened. Let's go in too. Like that's one of those moments where, you know, if if I'm I'm in an army there, I've got my chariot, I'm kind of like, hey, uh, Pharaoh, could we talk? I've never seen anything like this happen before. I'm led to believe after the 10 plagues and all, you know, I mean, I know they weren't a big deal, but after the 10 plagues and all, that there's a possibility that the God of Israel has opened this thing up, and since we're opposed to Israel, he may not exactly keep it open for us. No, 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 this is a good idea. Let's go in after him. And the water, I mean, there is a sense in this chapter where you see that humanity is saying, Well, this is how it works. I'll just blow my brains out and take that, God. I'll find some relief. And the Lord goes, I don't have to play by those rules. You think you've got this figured out on your own? You think somehow you can really be in charge of your life? Try me. It's far better to acknowledge my love and to acknowledge my lordship. It's far better to let me rescue you from your sin than to stay in your sin. In our culture, we call those who stand up to authority figures noble. You've put it all on the line. You're risking everything to make a stand for what you believe in. But is it really noble if what you're standing up for is wrong? Are you automatically noble just because you took a stand against authority? Would we say that was true of those who flew planes into skyscrapers killing hundreds of people? Of course we wouldn't say that, but that's what they thought. They thought they were doing good things. So why would it be okay to defy the perfect, loving, gracious, and sovereign God who made you? It's not noble. It's foolish. John 3.16 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, please stop rejecting Christ. He loves you so much that he stepped out of heaven, became a man, and he laid down his life so you don't have to lose yours to rescue you from yourself. And if you're a believer this morning, (laughs) receive his love anew. Run to your father's arms. Trust him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding because he is good. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you know every heart this morning. You know if there are those out there who are crying out to you, Lord, saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. I don't want to do things my way anymore. I want to follow you. I want to receive Christ. I want to rest in what he did for me on the cross. I acknowledge you as Lord. I acknowledge your love for me, and I I want to be rescued from my sins. You know if someone's saying that to you right now, and Lord, I pray for those who would be saying that, that you would wash them clean, that you would make them your child, bring them into the family of God, change their life forever. And then, Lord, for those who maybe they're not walking with you or haven't been walking with you and they're, maybe you got their attention this morning. As they run into your arms, Lord, would you welcome them back? Let them know that they're your son, they're your daughter. Would you wash them clean and new and afresh? And Lord, for all of us, would we not be frightened by these judgments knowing that we have been saved from wrath by our Lord Jesus. If you received us unto yourself when we were your enemy, how much more are we saved from wrath through Christ who loved us? Where we thank you that what awaits for us is not a fearful thing. We're falling into your hands, Lord, that will always protect us and always keep us safe. Lord, give us boldness, though, to share our faith with those who have not experienced that yet. That while you tarry, should you tarry, that others might come into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.